Hello, welcome back to Honor of Kings. Uh, this is episode 12, and uh, I'm Sean Griffin, joined here with my awesome co-host. <laughs> Ken Heidebrecht. Thank you for the compliment, Sean. Is it already 12 episodes in? I, I believe this is number 12, yeah. Episode 12. Wow, that's a good number. Yeah, we've done a lot of fun episodes. We've had a, we revealed the Tree of Life from the Book of Enoch. Uh, which was a huge episode that I just blew me away. Like just that study was, was really awesome. Um, we've also, you know, I mean, we've, we've looked into so many fun topics that uh, much of the church is confused about because the book of Enoch expounds on it so well. And so thoroughly um, we've got to see actually the literal Zion, the mountain, the throne of, of God, of the throne that, that Yeshua will sit on during the millennial reign. Uh, we've seen so many fun things, in the book of Enoch, as we've explored it thus far this week, we're going to be looking at chapters 40 through 45. Um, I'm really excited about this one uh, because we've got we're actually going to be looking at some of the jobs of the angels of what they're doing in relation to um, not just the day of the Lord, but just in general, as far as, you know, their interaction with uh, with bad angels and with, you know, demonic entities and the spirit, you know, the, as Paul talked about, you know, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities, you know, uh, darkness and high places, that kind of concept. So. Um, there's there's a lot going on in these these uh, six chapters. Um, we're going to run through it, but real quick, I just wanted to make an announcement just just in case folks didn't know. My co-host Ken here, he actually is a musician and uh, he's put out several albums. He just released his latest album called New Cloth, and uh, it came out on October second. So I just want to congratulate you again, Ken, on releasing that that album. Yeah, thank you very much, Sean. And uh, it's a bit of a different genre than my previous two albums before it but i've been getting some good reviews on it and um yeah yeah i just i have a passion for getting you know theologically sound messages out through music and right. uh <laughs> it seems to be kind of rare you know you can be listening to, to whatever music in the in the radio or on cd and and i'm finding as i mature in my faith and understand the scriptures that there's lyrics that i, I used to praise Yahweh with that I no longer agree theologically so I just wanted to take that upon myself to you know get out a message that I think is a little more accurate in terms of what the scriptures have to say so and that's one of the fun. reasons I love your music because your music actually causes me to think about what I'm singing to the point where not only does it flow and it works well musically and lyrically but it uh because you're you know God's definitely gifted you but at the same time it causes me to actually consider the scriptures you're singing about and uh and man it's it's so much deeper and better than just repeating the same thing you know i could sing of your love forever 10 times over right you know, people just repeat over and over holy are you lord he is holy we could sing of his love forever yes but a song shouldn't be 15 stanzas of repeating the same line so thankfully we've got amazing music that ken is providing us i encourage you guys to go check it out uh here's a quick intro for it So yeah, go check that out when you have a time. Um, I already bought it. It's great. <laughs> and uh, I play it often. So, but again, this week in honor of Kings, we are, um, we're, we're, like I said, we're going to be talking about chapters 40 through 45. 
Um, but we also put a call out in last episode just to, to the viewer. So we want people to help us with understand or with uh, suggestions as far as which books we should look at next. This, the, you know, the apocryphal books. So which ones are people interested in and, and knowing more about seeing if they line up with scripture. So put that in the comments below. We want to hear from you on which book you think we would want to look at or that you've been interested in. Um, just because we're going to, we're probably going to stop here in a few weeks, looking at the book of Enoch and take a little break from it. And we're going to jump into some other books because there's a lot of content out there and we're trying to, trying to get to as much as we can. We've spent almost a full, you know, we've spent three months already on the book of Enoch and we could probably take the whole year if we really let ourselves because it's such a big book. But um, we there are a lot of other apocryphal books that were removed from the scriptures, from the canon uh, that we have in our modern American Bibles. And we actually want to, uh, you know, dig into those as well. So uh, let us know in the comments which ones you'd like us to, to look at. Yeah, absolutely. And John, um, just so the viewers know, we started actually with the Book of Jubilees on a different platform. And then when we jumped onto your Kingdom and Context platform here, we, we decided to just go into the Book of Enoch. So guys, anywhere from, you know, continuing on with Enoch, get into the Book of Jubilees, Tobit, 2nd Ezra, 2nd Baruch, whatever, you know, whatever you may think that may be interesting to be discussed on the show, let us know. And, uh, we we definitely love to take the poll and and go that route with whatever comes up to be the majority. So yeah, if I can, real quick, I like to make just insert an idea that we we repeat often here on Honor of Kings that we just want people to understand the reason we decided to approach the apocryphal books the way we did. It's not enough. We found uh, in our life and our conversation with other people, with other believers, trying to dissect some of these books, you know, through uh, through other conversation. So many people struggle regardless of what the book could say, right? So like the book of Enoch could spend seven or eight chapters as it does spend seven or eight chapters explaining the Messiah in his second coming. And those details can match up all the descriptions we see in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Amos, Zechariah, Jesus himself, his own words, the book of Revelation. So all those descriptions from the American canon of 66 can match and does match exactly what Enoch says for multiple chapters. But we run into believers who go, well, we can't validate Enoch. It, the earliest copy we have was from 2nd century BC. So someone has sold us on this, on this, this system, if you will, this thought process of how we validate Scripture by men's approval. So this whole concept of, well, has, has, it, been, has it been validated? Have the scholars said it's legit? You see what I'm saying? Yep. So here's here's what I'm getting at, Ken. We could find a we could find a um, a jar in a cave, and that jar could have the Book of Isaiah in it. It that that jar also will not have a date written on it, so we don't know if that if that Book of Isaiah when it was written or that scroll of Isaiah. But does it match up with the other scrolls that people have had and and have always had? Right. That's right. So that's the point of why we look at the content. And we don't look at validating the author as far as literally being able to trace through documentation who literally put pen to paper or, you know, ink to scroll and actually wrote out this information, right? Because, yes, there could be forgeries. So here's an example of what I'm getting at. Ken, what if I wrote the major things? What if I just straight plagiarized Isaiah and I wrote some of the major things he talked about in, in huge portions of his book? And I created my own book, and I called it the Book of the Testament of the Ages, just random title, okay? Yeah. 
the book of the testament of the ages spotlights the book of the testament of the ages and and i and i was like oh my goodness this was found in some um in some discovered city in the land of goshen in northern egypt along the delta so this must have been a this must have been a book that the hebrews wrote it was found in aramaic or hebrew or paleo hebrew more than likely and the book of the testament of the ages was has been held up as as matching exactly what Isaiah talks about in his prophecies. So therefore, what do we what do we say? Is that is that a book that is inspired by God? I would say we have to match the content. We have to take a look at the content and what it says. So this is the this is the concept of understanding Deuteronomy 13 and understanding Deuteronomy 18 because both are the are tests for a quote unquote prophet. So Deuteronomy 13 talks about if a prophet does signs and those signs do come true, yet he is leading you away from God, then he's a false prophet. Deuteronomy 18 says that he, if he declares something to be happening in the future and it doesn't happen, don't listen to him. He's not a real prophet. But even if something does happen that he declared and he follows that sign up with trying to get you to worship a different God than Yahweh and teaching something against the command of Yahweh, right? of which the Messiah is included in that, our, our Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, then therefore they're a false prophet, according to Deuteronomy 13. It's that simple, okay? So it's right. basically it's like, are they trying to get you away from God's truth or are they trying to get you to follow God's truth? That's the only difference. So therefore, if, our, if myself or Kim were to write something down, it doesn't have to be quote-unquote validated to be inspired by Yahweh by modern scholars since there was no Mount Sinai moment event with angels and a big cloud and, and tablets brought down. So many of these scribes and these and these prophets didn't have that moment like Moses did. They just wrote stuff down as it was inspired upon their heart. So therefore, does what they wrote down, does that actually match up with what's taught at Mount Sinai and to the patriarchs and to the, you know, is, is the information all the same? So we can't hang our credibility on whether we take a text seriously on whether or not some man, some scholar who may not even understand the context whether he claims that he knows you know, the documentation of who actually wrote it or not, or if we have the original first copy. Guys, those are absolute red herrings. That is not how you would validate a message one upon the other. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so if, I, if, if, the, if this fictional book that I mentioned that I wrote called The, the Testament of the Ages, right? Uh, if that book was contrary to the gospel of the kingdom or to what Isaiah was writing, then you would know, oh, well, this is not right. This is a false prophet. You know what I mean? So this is the point of us taking the content from these books and trying to line them up with what we already see. And the reason that Ken and I uh, can do this is because we've spent a lot of time studying the actual books of the prophets in the canon of 66, not just to be able to understand the context of what they're talking about, to be able to communicate it back to you. Um, so that it, with coherency, and if we're not doing it with coherency, please tell us in the comments below. Always be willing to question something we say on the show. Put it in the comments below. But our whole goal is this, you know, we've spent most of our adult life studying these books to understand how the central message they're all talking about and, and the big themes they're all talking about. And that's, and that's um, the only way that a person can line up, whether they're in league with the same, you know, is Amos in league with Isaiah? Is Isaiah in league with david right or with moses or with jeremiah you know did the things jesus say line up with isaiah or with moses you know what I mean? this is how we that's why the, the book is always repeating itself in all the different prophet books of the prophets 
even up into the book of Revelation. They're constantly repeating themselves. And that's why in the epistle letters, you've got John and Paul and James and, um, and Luke. They're just literally citing the Old Testament prophets to explain what they're watching happening in fulfillment. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So this, this whole concept is they're not, they're not bringing about a new story or a new narrative either. Everything it's the, you know, you know, jokingly the, the book of Deuteronomy can is called the book of remembrance, but I'll be honest with you, bro. The whole Bible, it, once you understand what it's talking about and how all the prophets are talking about, the whole thing is just constantly repeating itself constantly yep. over and over and over in every book, all 66 books in this canon and in many of the apocryphals that we've studied and, and thoroughly looked at. It's the same message. It's the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's constantly being repeated over and over and over. When Jesus sent out his disciples in Luke 9, he told them, go out and preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. So yeah. Jesus is the walking embodiment of this. So he can't go and start having a different message, nor can he tell someone else to go preach a different message. Yeah. It's repeating itself constantly. Amen. Beautifully said, that man. No, that was, that was beautiful. That was a, a very... Um, a good analogy you use there. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, when they do question some of these extra biblical texts that we have books that we would consider canonized that are in our 66, you know, canon here that some of them, they don't understand. Like some scholars have no idea, like who these could be, who these authors are. Right. Deuteronomy, yeah. as you said, that's one of them. There's chapters nearing the end of that book. Couldn't be Moses writing that because he's dead at that point. <laughs> Yeah. And then yeah. we have the book of Job. No one knows who really wrote that book and Hebrews. I mean, so we have things that we consider scripture. You do not touch it. It's, you know, it's validated and it's, you know, it, it's made the, the canon for reasons. Right. But, you know, when we look at, the, at those examples, it, it kind of falls short to that, to that way of scrutinizing things. Right. So I agree, yeah. Sean, that, that was, that was a good analogy. Yeah. So, that's that's our hard for people to understand this idea because essentially we're not only trying to help people break past this uh, indoctrinated mindset of of just immediately discounting books without looking at them because that's just how you stay in ignorance but we're also trying to help people break through this idea of putting a uh, authority where it hasn't been earned and where the scriptures hasn't placed it so that's why a prophet's message has to line up with those with the other prophets for one, but also with, you know, with what um, the consistent message of Yahweh was. So right. if we ever come across an apocryphal book that starts teaching, you know, any kind of command of worship or, or to not obey the, the commandments or to, you know, to somehow practice pagan ways or to, to worship a different God of some sort, that's an easy way for us to understand that that guy is nowhere near inspired by God to write that down. That's right. So it's just, it's really that simple but we've been tricked into a much more complicated process. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if there's, you know, themes, if there's themes and concepts included too, that completely contradict the themes and concepts that are in the overarching, overarching context of the scriptures and the message as a whole, then we'll be able to, you know, recognize that, wait a minute, this, this is something we should keep an eye on. Right. And so that's why we need to study. We need to know what the, what the narrative says so that when we come across some of these extra biblical books and there are books guys, we're not, Sean and I aren't saying that, <laughs> that every single book that's been found in scrolls um, is potentially scripture. We're just saying like, yes, there are some really bad Gnostic ones out there, but when you understand the context and the overarching themes and concepts that make up the whole of the gospel message, you can pick things out. 
You right. Can, you can discern what's what's good and what's bad. Oh, just one immediate example would be um, second and third Enoch. That's right. You know, for, we're we're dissecting first Enoch, which is generically called the Book of Enoch, but there's also a second and third Enoch, which Ken and I don't believe line up at all. So you know, because of the it does not fit with the major themes of all the other prophets at all. So I don't care who wrote it or when it was penned; it doesn't matter. <laughs> the content within what it's actually saying doesn't line up. So, all right, enough of that. Just hope to to remind people of of our general premise of this and our and our actual motivating reasoning. So, um, okay, guys, we're going to jump into the uh, our our book of Enoch, chapter forty, is where we're, where we left off last time. So that's where we're going to jump in. Ken, do you want to read that one real quick? Absolutely. Okay, brother. All right, guys, chapter forty here. And after that, I saw thousands of thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. I saw a multitude beyond number and reckoning who stood before the Lord of Spirits. And on the four sides of the Lord of Spirits, I saw four presences, different from those that sleep not, and I learnt their names. For the angel that went with me made known to me their names and showed me all the hidden things. And I heard the voices of those four presences as they uttered praises before the Lord of glory. The first voice blesses the Lord of Spirits forever and ever. And the second voice I heard blessing the elect one and the elect ones who hang upon the Lord of Spirits. And the third voice I heard pray and intercede for those who dwell on the earth and supplicate in the name of the Lord of Spirits. And I heard the fourth voice fending off the Satans and forbidding them to come before the Lord of Spirits to accuse them who dwell on the earth. After that, I asked the angel of peace who went with me, who showed me everything that is hidden. Who are these four presences which I have seen and whose words I have heard and written down? And he said to me, this first is Michael, the merciful and long-suffering. And the second who is set over all the diseases and all the wounds of the children of men is Raphael. And the third, who is set over all the powers is Gabriel. And the fourth, who is set over the repentance unto hope of those who inherit eternal life is named Phanuel. And these are the four angels of the Lord of Spirits and the four voices I heard in those days. So Thank we get some you. interesting descriptions, Sean, regarding yeah. what some of these angels watch over. And, and yeah. in this particular chapter, kind of what, you know, may be going on here in this instance that Enoch is, you know, been privileged to, to see. Yeah, I love verse two talks about the four presences that were different from those that sleep not. And uh, the, yeah. the angels that sleep not is a callback to the last chapters that we that's read. Right. Um, that's a that's a wild one for me that, that where it talks about they don't even sleep. So I guess that there, implies that the other ones do. Right, exactly. The watcher angels do need to snooze from time to time. Yeah, exactly. Let me actually find the scripture. Um, because there is an actual passage in one of the prophets that talk about how we will uh, forever uh, lie down and rise up with the Messiah. Yeah, that's right. It does say that. I don't know what you're talking about. While you're and looking I, for that, Sean. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Um, I was trying to remember exactly where it was. I want to say it was in Isaiah, but uh, I think it's in Second Ezra or Second Baruch, isn't it? I mentioned mm -hmm. something about that. How we're going to be eating, lying down, and getting up forever, or something. Is it in Second Ezra? Sounds very familiar from something that he would write. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, like we were saying, all the prophets repeat them, repeat themselves. It's the yeah. same message. So. Um, yeah, I guess uh, I'll have to look for it in here in a minute, but that just popped out to me. I didn't even prep that to talk about. It just popped out as we were reading it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's good to know that in the resurrection, you know, A, we'll be eating, and B, we will be rising 
and, and you know, getting up and out, out of bed. So we're going to be sleeping and I like sleep. Sleep is yeah. good. Well, that's what I'm getting at. I think in the millennial reign, we're actually going to be lying down and rising up. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. We're going to have is, habitations of our own dwelling places, right? Where we can do all that in. Yeah. I'm just trying to remember the, the actual verse, man. I can't believe it. I'm going blank on it. Um, <laughs> And the the, Sean, uh, the Sean Cyclopedia is going blank here. That's well. Yeah, that's man, I can't remember it off the top of my head right now. It is, um, I think it was in Isaiah. Well, it's Isaiah sixty, maybe. But well, uh, while you're looking for that, Sean, um, I just wanted to address something that I find commonly kind of comes up for those who who don't agree with the book of Enoch or the content that's contained within. And, you know, I've seen the argument that, well, look at the Lord of spirits. Who's the Lord of spirits. We, I haven't seen that name anywhere in the other books. So this can't be, you know, this can't be a good book because Lord of spirits, that sounds very, you know, blasphemous in a way. Well, guys, Yahweh is spirit. We know that there are spiritual things that he created and he's Lord over all the spirits. It's not, it's not a, an odd title for him to, you know, to have, it, it yeah. goes in line with a lot of, you know, other titles that we see in the scriptures that, you know, just show that he is preeminent over all these things. And he's the Lord of the spirits of all the angels of all the spirits that we see in the book of Jubilees of the spirits that watch over the, you know, the clouds and the dew and the waters and the, all the different elements and stuff. I mean, he's the Lord over all them and the Lord over us. Cause you know, we technically are made of spirit as well and we will be right. even more so at the resurrection. So it's not an odd title for Yahweh to possess. I just wanted to bring that up, Sean. Yeah, it's not. Uh, and that, you know, like he's talking about, it's just understanding that they are spirits. That's their type of classification. So he's the Lord of them. <laughs> yeah. All the angels are spirit ministering spirits, as we're told. Um, well, I'll just I'll have to find that passage later again, because I, maybe it was actually in the book of Enoch itself. Um, and I'm just missing it. Yeah, it might be in Enoch, too. <laughs> but uh but either way, not, I mean, we've already talked about on other shows, um, like on our uh, road to rescue show that we do on parable of the vineyard on Wednesday nights, you know, how we talked about, um, just the concept of the survivors, uh, after the day of the Lord and how, you know, once they're being taught the ways of Yahweh, the actual, the way, <laughs> the ways of, of lawfulness, um, that they can actually come inside the new Jerusalem to a degree and many of them to the point where they can actually live there and have children there. And so, yeah, they'll be sleeping for sure. And they'll yeah. be sleeping in the presence of God. So, you know, um, whether it's us in our resurrected state doing it or not, <clears throat> I wouldn't put it past us being able to do it. Just maybe not need to do it. If that makes any sense. Yeah, totally does. It can be a, maybe a choice. I want to, I want to I yeah. wanna sleep right now and then you can do it and, and your body doesn't necessarily need it. Yeah. Yeah. I used to actually practice when I was younger to try to tell myself without an alarm clock, I would try to, to trick my mind and waking me up because I, I was told that we have an internal clock that always kind of is aware of what, what hour it is during the day subconsciously. Yeah. And I was like, well, what if I just could trick my brain into waking me up at six in the morning without an alarm clock because it it's going off that internal subconscious clock, you know? And so, <laughs> yeah, I, I slept right through 6am. <laughs> That's funny. I, didn't, I never mastered whatever practice that is. So, <laughs> 
Yeah. So guys, the, the first verse here, and after that, I saw thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. That's just another reference to, you know, Revelation um, 5, 11, where, he, where John sees and hears the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. The number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. We see that consistently throughout the scriptures and other texts. It's just referring to these myriads that are surrounding Yahweh's throne, which apparently is in the, the seventh firmament, according to the Apocalypse of Abraham, which is interesting. Yeah. And in verse five, we see stuff like the elect one. That's the Messiah. That's why they try to capitalize it. And the plural right following right after it, the elect ones who hang up on the Lord of spirits. Um, to me, that's the, you know, the resurrected saints. That's right. So, um, yeah. so uh, just, I guess, in my opinion, that answers the question of who's the elect. <laughs> that's right. You know, so there's not, doesn't require a whole long in-depth in explanation on that, in my opinion. Yeah. They just need to read the book of Enoch to understand that's constantly being referenced in, to the Messiah and the resurrected saints. Uh, we got verse, uh, looks like six, where it talks about um, the third voice that prayed and interceded for those who dwell on the earth and supplicate in the name of the Lord of Spirits. Now, I want to remind people that when it says in the name of the Lord of Spirits, that's just referring to the authority of God. So the authority of the Father. And I actually do an entire uh, video on that on, on my channel here, Kingdom in Context. It's one of my morning cup of context videos. Uh, it's called In the Name. It's, I'm going to flash it up here on the screen for you, put the link in the comments. But this whole concept of in the name is just I go through scripture and I break down the concept of, of why they use that term because it's talking about being in his authority. You know, like you ever, uh, Ken, you ever, um, there was an old movie that came out in like in the late 90s. It was called In the Name of the King or something like that. And uh, it, it was just like a, you know, was that Yul, Yul Brenner in that I one? don't remember the actors, but it was like a medieval-style movie, you know, set in okay. the 13, 1400s. But it was just basically, you know, about, you know, castles and kings, you know. And so, like, one of the guys who had, was, like, the emissary of the king, he was walking in the authority of the king. He's, like, in the name of the king. So you're – or I, I could be wrong, but I think it was also kind of along the lines of them going out and do battle in the name of the king. And so um, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie. I don't know if they're trying to attribute it to religious reasons or not, but – the point is, that's all that means is like if, if like, you know, modern day terminology, <clears throat> we've got a secretary of state. They're walking in the name of the president of the United States. So they're walking in the authority, the representative to be able to speak. They've been given that that confidence by the president for them to go out and speak on their behalf on, on diplomatic matters and international policy. So that's the whole that's the same concept we're dealing with. Yeah, exactly. Um, verse four. We got talking about the fourth voice fending off the Satans and forbidding them to come before the Lord of the spirits to accuse them who dwell on the earth. Um, so this is interesting where, you know, and I know that we were talking before the show, we were trying to figure out, you know, maybe the where of this particular verse, we were trying to figure out where are they coming before the, the Lord of spirits to accuse those who dwell on the earth, these Satans. <clears throat> yeah, it, it can be tricky. Um, I mean, the way I understand it or, you know, um, the way I read it is it seems like they have access to Yahweh's throne area somewhat, but um, I could be now, wrong about that. This, this is, you know, one of those episodes where Ken and I probably disagree on, on a couple of um, very minor points. And that's why we're still studying it out and we're letting you guys watch us do it together, you know, because basically uh, from all my contextual understanding of the idea of the Satan's, my conclusion is that this is a term not specifically referencing um, who we talked about in the past, which seems to be this Azazel character as the dragon, the Satan, 
like the main the main uh, antagonist and uh um enemy basically but as far as the leader of them but just as because it's written in a plural here in the translation it makes me think that these are the you know the accused the demonic entities right that are under the authority of satan try to come before and accuse those who dwell on the earth how do they do that that's i don't think they go to heaven before god's throne um personally so i that's why i'm still trying to make sense of this particular statement as far as how that happens that's right yeah and, and i don't want that the, i'm sorry yeah, i was gonna say I, the hebrew word for that is hasatan right so i mean it just means adversaries right and i don't want to misrepresent your view so i'll let you explain your thoughts on what it could be yeah so i mean contextually if we're looking at this chapter um running alongside the previous chapter where it was a day of the lord kind of event and then you know as we re we're going to read the next the next chapter it seems to be the first couple of verses of the next chapter still are within the vein of the day of the lord um time frame i see possibly that this could line up with revelation 12 where satan is thrown onto the earth and um, it says in verse 10 then i heard a loud voice in heaven saying now the salvation and power and the kingdom of god and the authority of his christ have come for the accuser of our brother has been thrown down he who accuses them before our god day and night so not sure if we can take that literally where where satan you know had the ability to kind of accuse us who are trying to keep the commandments of god day and night as in literally every single day him going up and just presenting his case and then like going to and fro on the earth as we see in job he does um, but I see this could possibly link up with that if if this is a day of the Lord time frame and, and if Satan is cast down to the earth during that time frame on the day of the Lord too. I'm not 100% sure when he gets cast down in, in respect with the 42-month reign of Apollyon and the day of the Lord. I don't know where to put that in that timeline. So honestly, yeah. this is this is an area of um, study that I, I need to continue to brush up on and, and I just don't have a, a solid conclusion as of yet you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of uh, <clears throat> the instituted daily sacrifices so which were which were for atonement <laughs> so if you got someone accusing you every day then maybe a high priest needs to make atonement every day yeah I, i'm just i just always wonder why there was need to be a morning and evening sacrifice daily um which again we we're trying to help people understand this terminology to take some of the bad you know the bad connotation out of it that people have overimposed on it throughout the years that when we talk about sacrifices according to scripture that's when the father instructed those who believe and obey you know as far as these specific times both daily and on sabbaths on these feast days throughout the year to come and bring a meal before him and the natural process of bringing you know byob bring your own beef you know what i mean so the natural process of bringing your own beef was you brought before the lamb the goat the bull or whatever and then you slaughtered it. Then the priest did what he needed to do with the blood of it. You, he then, you know, trimmed it professionally so that you could cook the portions that you're supposed to eat, burn the refuse that you didn't eat. And then, you know, you already did what you did with the blood as far as him doing it, making atonement sprinkling. If it was that kind of sacrifice, they're not all that kind of sacrifice. There's details to them. So the whole point was that God instructed them, like, I want you to bring a meal to my house and eat in my presence. He's basically inviting his kids over for dinner, but he's telling them, hey, the whole sacrifice part is I want you to bring your, I want you to bring the food. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. 
So that's why it was called the first fruits offering or the first of your livestock or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, Because they were supposed to bring their own provisions for the meal. Um, You know, that's the kind of the idea of them sacrificing their time and their provisions to come eat in the house of the father. So I just wanted to spell all that religiosity that's that's overimposed onto that term. Um, So when we talk about this, about how there was a daily sacrifice for people that or a daily atonement sacrifice, morning and evening, and also on Sabbaths, which was every seventh day. Um, I don't know if it has to do with the the accuser of the brethren accusing those who dwell on earth day and night. You know, yeah. I don't know if it has to do or not. But what I do see, though, in this verse is whatever this fourth voice is, it's actually fending off those accusers. So yeah. what does that mean? Like, that's why I was asking, where is this actually taking place? Yeah, I think he's probably just hearing He's hearing the voice of the angel, right? And and I don't know if the actual voice is fending it off. Maybe. I mean, maybe that's kind of the implication here. But this is in regards to Fanuel, interesting angel. Um, but even going back to, you know, your, um, your perspective on it possibly being the demonic entities that Azazel was given authority over. Um, I think we both agree, Sean, that Enoch does tell us that the the Nephilim spirits that died, or the Nephilim that died, and and you know when they killed themselves off, and then in, in the flood, the ones that were wandering around after that as disembodied spirits, they they were to dwell on the earth. They couldn't they couldn't somehow get through the firmament to That's actually right. get to Yahweh's throne. So I guess where we're struggling is how, what it really means to be you know coming before Him and and you know, and accusing the, those who dwell on the earth. So we're not sure how to take that exactly, whether literal or just, you know, in another way. Because we can take this term coming before him and and see that all over the Torah where they would come before the tabernacle to quote unquote, come before the Lord. That's right. So again, what, what exactly does this mean? That where is this taking place? And that's where, you know, Ken and I kind of both agree that the rebellious angels that, took wives and had offspring Nephilim that they were their punishment was given to them. And it was actually enacted uh, before the flood. That's what we've discerned from earlier episodes. So you're welcome, excuse me. You're welcome to go back and check those episodes out. Um, but then we also agree that one of the angels Azazel was seemingly his punishment was declared, but we don't see the fulfillment of that punishment, even according to Enoch until we see that revelation 20 moment where he's grabbed at the coming of the Lord. And so that's why he's in the mix during the book of Revelations as the as the you know the beast who gives his authority to the Antichrist. Um, excuse me, the dragon who gives his authority to the beast, the Antichrist. That's why that's kind of where we got this idea of, of this one particular angel who didn't take a wife. His punishment was declared, but yet he wasn't really punished at the time. He wasn't confined at that moment. His confinement's coming in the future. So he's still running around doing mischief, obviously, as we talk about in Job 1 and 2. He's still doing his thing. Like Peter says, roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But he's got minions that work for him. We discussed that in a few episodes back. That's revealed in, what was it, chapter 14 or 10? I can't put the number on, man. I'm not yeah. sure which one it was. But, uh, but basically, the, the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, uh, nine-tenths of those entities went into Sheol in confinement. One-tenth of them was left out under the authority of this Satan character, right? Which we've concluded seems to be an Azazel character. Book of Jubilees also calls him Satan and calls him Mastima. And he's the one that's kind of chief over these evil spirits, which Jesus would call the unclean spirits in the New Testament. And therefore, that's the minions running around. So my theory runs along the lines of um, 
they're they're coming before the Father, fending off the Satan's. And I think about what Paul says in Galatians six that you know, or Ephesians six that we're we did not want flesh and blood, but uh, spiritual wickedness in high places and principalities and things like that. Um, I personally think that they're somehow, and and this kind of goes off into a little bit of a tangent, but that they're actually being able to be in the in the air. So they're not just roaming on the ground, but they're in the air as well. Um, and this is actually going to play into the fake alien invasion in the future. But this is this is where that that's kind of a whole different you know show. But that's kind of where I see that is they're literally they have from the past they've always had extremely advanced technology, and that they have the ability to actually be in the air because again, people kind of confuse the idea Ken of what an actual spirit is. And so this, when we call this an unclean spirit, it's the, and the point of them being a Nephilim to where they just weren't confined like a human spirit to Sheol immediately, and they had the ability to stay on the land. I would, I would posit from everything we've learned in the Book of Enoch and everything we know about the first resurrection, how we get our new bodies into a spiritual body, that these entities were not created in the same way Adam was created. So, however, this union between rebellious angels and women took about, they. Their, their, the nature, if you will, of their bodies is a little bit different from regular man. And therefore, you know, that's the whole point of how they can possess something now, as, as now that they've lost their shell, but they're still a spirit and they're wanting and they can actually possess something. Men can't do that. That's right. So there's clearly a different type of nature to these things. And so, um, and Yahweh did not create these things. Yahweh did not create these. The rebellious angels did. That was the whole point. And yeah, it was some sort of higher understanding that we don't have, but they were misusing that higher privilege knowledge to create these Nephilim. So there's a couple contextual issues, in my opinion, that would go into this statement. And that's just and that's just where I'm coming from, is I feel like those are the adversaries that Satan's being revert, uh, referenced here, is just this concept of them being... Um, coming before him to actually accuse the brethren, but it's not specifically Satan doing it every time because he's doing other things. So just like he has his minions do other things, he would have his minions come up with claiming, you know, hey, look at your children, how bad they are. Why are, you know, why would you possibly give them mercy and, and grace to, to be good again? You know what I mean? Right, right. So they're constantly trying to do that. That's just the way I'm looking at it. And, and they come before him as far as being in the air, just like Nimrod tried to shoot arrows at God in the air. That's the same vein as far as how they're coming before him. Right. <laughs> and um, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> no, it's it's a good, good, very plausible theory for sure, Sean. Um, I think it probably makes more sense than mine, if I'm going to be honest. But um, while you were talking there, I was just reminded in Job 1, verse 6, where it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. And Yahweh said to Satan, From where do you come? And then Satan answers the Lord and says, From roaming around about on the earth and walking around in it. So right at the beginning there, verse 6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came with them. It just reminded me of another extra biblical book, one that I don't refer to often on these shows because I haven't fully vetted it. So guys, don't take this as like me promoting it. But the book of Adam and Eve talks about how the angels right from the beginning of creation, which actually coincides with the book of Jubilees, that they have, you know, feast days that, that they have to kind of present themselves before Yahweh as well in the heavens, just like we do on the earth. And they celebrate things just like we do. And they have to follow laws just like we do. And um, it could be 
that this is what Job 1 verse 6 is talking about. While there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves and Satan had to come, he like legally had to come just like all the other angels before Yahweh's presence. And in this book of Adam and Eve, it talks about it was like a, you know, an ordained day that they had to come and worship him essentially. So in this Adam and Eve book, it, it describes the devil as coming kind of reluctantly before him and doing that. So I don't know. It, it's very reminiscent of, of that book. And um, I'm just wondering if that's possibly where Job 1 verse 6 um, kind of gets integrated into. But that's a yeah. theory. I don't know. No, it, it is a good theory, in my opinion, because it is something we actually see in the law. Um, because it's, uh, let me just see if I can find the verse real quick. Um and then with that included, Sean, it, we wouldn't necessarily have to say in Revelation that, you know, where it says that Satan comes before him the day and accuses the brother day and night and he no longer can do that. I mean, this would imply that he, he goes definitely and accuses, but it's not every single day and night. He just has to come before Yahweh on certain days, like all the other angels have to do. And he probably does it while he's while he's there. <laughs> but we can edit some of this out if we need to. I'm going to find this first real quick because um, Deuteronomy 16, 16, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, three times a year. Let me see. Let me tell you. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before uh, Yahweh your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Yeah. So, Deuteronomy so it 16. could be them doing that too, right? Yeah. So let me uh, back up real quick and I'll just use my presenter voice sure. and go back into that. Yeah. And looks here it is, Ken. It looks like it's in Deuteronomy 16, 16. Um, it says that three times a year, three times in a year, all your males shall appear before Yahweh, your God, in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unloving Bread and at the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty handed. So these three big feasts, which the Book of Jubilees actually tells us that the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, which is sometimes referred to as the Passover concept because it's connected, uh, the Feast of Weeks, which is also Shavuot, and then also the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, so that's your your Sukkot, your you know Feast of Booths. Um, those three big ones right there, the males were supposed to come present themselves to the Lord. So this could be along the lines. I mean, it says that um, the Feast of Booths was being kept in heaven since creation in Jubilees chapter 16, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And all angels are males, which would make sense that right. male human beings had to do the same type of command. So, Yeah, yeah, they're following the, the law in heaven, and that's why he gave it for us to fall on the earth. So it could be. That could be it, man. Um, but yeah, that's, and I don't know if that's when he comes to accuse them. I just don't know the whole term day and night that you know throws us off because clearly he's not in front of the father constantly you know right. and so but we'll, we'll let people you know chat in the comments what they think that that might be referring to but we're just trying to keep the context of some of these words being used and ideas being expressed yeah um, actually sean since i just referred to uh, the book of jubilees here um before we move on to another chapter um where was it verse verse nine and he said to me, this first is Michael, the merciful and long-suffering, and the second, who is set over all the diseases and all the wounds of the children of men, is Raphael. That's what I wanted to kind of hone in on, is this Raphael is over the diseases and all the wounds of the children of men. In the book of Jubilees, chapter 10, it talks about, and this is um, 
in the narration of the angels, guys. This is a really fascinating book. In this particular chapter, verse 10 says, and one of us, he commanded that we should teach Noah all their medicines. So Noah is essentially just coming off the ark. He's seeing that there's all these unclean spirits that were just, you know, destroyed in the flood and before that through the devices of their own, you know, um, mischievery with, they were told that they had to kill each other off. And so we got these wandering spirits and Noah has having to deal with them just like just coming off the boat and they're tormenting his, his sons and his grandsons and stuff like that. And so one of the angels here is saying, and one of us, he commanded that we should teach Noah all their medicines where he knew that they would not walk in uprightness nor strive in righteousness. And we did according to all his works, all the malignant evil ones we bound in the place of condemnation and a 10th part of them we left that they might be subject subject before Satan on the earth, which Sean had mentioned just earlier. And we explained to Noah all the medicines of their diseases, together with their seductions, how he might heal them with herbs of the earth. And Noah wrote down all the things in a book as we instructed him concerning every kind of medicine. Thus, the evil spirits were precluded from hurting the sons of Noah. And then he gave all the all that he had written to Shem, his eldest son, for he loved him exceedingly above all his sons. So here we have the idea of these angels giving Noah all the different medicines and concoctions that can combat the diseases and the ailments and just the overall evil of these malignant evil spirits. And um, it might be Raphael. Who yeah, it might be. Just based off of that verse in Enoch. Yeah, that would be good. You know, actually, these this verse 9, where it goes over these four angels and what they're in charge of, this is kind of a, a very common um, tripping point for many people when they look at the book of Enoch. They think that this one here is claiming... Um, specifically where it talked about Phanuel being set over those uh, over the repentance and the hope for those who inherit eternal life. Um, they think that this is saying that Phanuel is suddenly taking the role away from Messiah, yeah. <laughs> but because of what this is. Guys, all angels are in charge of stuff. That's kind of the point of why they're called ministering spirits. Like they have jobs to perform. And Michael is merciful, long-suffering, the second. who. So are we to say Michael is taking away the attributes of being merciful and long suffering from the Messiah. <laughs> of course, with that not. logic we would have to, if we're going to use that with Fanny, right? Right. And would we say that uh, suddenly with Raphael, since he's set over all the diseases and the wounds of the children of men, that so no longer Isaiah 55, no longer applies to the Messiah that he, he heals our wounds by his stripes. We were healed, right? That he's the one that's going to help resurrect us and heal us forever from our infirmities that we <laughs> suffered in the first life. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah. like, of course not. Of course not, guys. This is just the concept of explaining these angels and what job functions they were given, right? Because yeah. the Father always has top-down authority. He sets people in motion to do His will, to perform tasks. This is called agency. And that's yeah. all we're reading about, the actual job types given to the agency of Raphael, Fanuel, Michael, and Gabriel. That's right. And it's, Sean, it's just in a further elaboration on earlier chapter in the book of Enoch, chapter 20, right? So we don't see... Faniel discussed in that particular chapter as to what he watches over, but we are told what Raguel watches over and Uriel. So we're just, we're getting a further elaboration on, on the various angels that Yahweh kind of keeps close, close to his throne and what they yeah. watch over. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> they were created for, for specific reasons to do various things. And yeah. they're not just yeah. these robotic angels that just stand around and do nothing. Exactly. These are like, you know, 
they, they when they appear in mankind they look like men so like these are sentient beings that walk and talk and interact you know what I, what what blows my mind is that people will claim well look Fanuel is is saying that Fanuel is doing the Messiah's job so therefore Book of Enoch could just throw it all out and you're like actually for one that's not what it says at all anyway and two if with that logic what if we were to say in Revelation 20 so we're not even in the book of Enoch anymore I'm talking about Revelation in Revelation 20 in verse 1, where Michael takes the great chain, binds up Satan, and puts him in the earth for a thousand years. So who's the victor? Is Messiah the King of kings and Lord of lords and our victory and our righteousness, and, and he'll get the glory of the victory? Or does Michael? Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's the, most, it's the most ridiculous logic. And, yeah, and of course, and it, it's cool how that works because Michael, the, the chief commanding angel of the host of Yahweh's armies, he gets the joy and privilege to do that. That's right? right. Whereas Yeshua, the man who was resurrected into an immortal body, he gets to take care of his arch nemesis, Nimrod. That's right. He gets to That's lay right. him up in thigh and neck and bring him up to Mount Zion on the day of the Lord and and convict right. him and deal with him. So it's not stripping anything from from Yeshua in any way. It's no. just that we have these the many characters, guys, in the in the storyline that we're all a part of. That yeah, you know, yeah, we the overall victory. We've got this very myopic view of, of Jesus, like he's the only person doing anything, interacting. Like it's just, you know, it becomes and sometimes it kind of takes away from, you know, just understanding the context of all these characters that are at play, like Kim was talking about, because Yeshua, just like he sent on his disciples to, to do things and to spread his message and his will. He has his angels at his disposal now. Matthew 20, in Yeshua's own words, in Jesus' own words, Matthew 25, 31, he's coming back with the angels. <laughs> so, like, he's not doing every single part of it, you know? Um, yeah, I just, it blows my mind, the the, the lack of, like, it's, it, and it's because that's what we've been taught. And I, I'm, not, I'm trying to give people a break, you know? I'm not trying to be harsh because it's just what, over time, generationally, so many so many pastors have just pounded into us. Just, just focus on Jesus. Just focus on Jesus. Just focus on Jesus. And so suddenly everybody is trying to put Jesus in every single place in the Bible and every single role. You know what right. I mean? And it's yeah. just, it's not how you read. That's and, not, and just, that's and not just reading. Focus on, on the 66 books. Just focus on the 66 books. Yeah. But guys, we have a loving creator who has given us a wealth of understanding and knowledge and had it written down by his holy scribes and prophets to show us just how elaborate this entire storyline is and there's many characters and he's just giving us glimpses into what their character traits are like. Yeah. If like, it was the year 1820, those same pastors would be saying, just focus on the 80 books. Enoch included. Just focus on those. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it's very, um, very subjective viewpoint, very immediate and myopic and subjective. And I just trying to help people broaden, their, their realization because we're trying to help you see the contextual layers that are always being repeated over and over and over in all the books. So, so Sean, is there anything? 40? Yeah, I was just going to ask you the same question. I think. Well, I'm just going to read that the beginning of 41, um, the first two verses, because it, it could apply back to 40 because there's an actual break in for, between verses two and three in chapter 41. Um, and that could be, you know, again, if this was written in the Aramaic and, you know, or the old Hebrew, like there would have been no, chapter dividers anyway so we're trying to look at the context as far as like what's actually lining up but in verse in chapters 41 verse 1 and 2 it says and after that i saw the secrets of the heavens and how the kingdom is divided and how the actions of men are weighed in the balance and there i saw the mansions of the elect and the mansions of the holy and mine eyes saw there all the all the sinners being driven from 
there which deny the name of the Lord of Spirits and being dragged off, and they could not abide because of the punishment which proceeds from the Lord of Spirits. And the reason I'm stopping there is because the next one starts talking about um, how the sun and moon, the moon work, and so it's completely different context. And it, it makes me wonder if the beginning of 41 is somehow related to all of 40, um, but it could be, it could not be, it could just be a, a little insertion on its own. It could very well be. And unfortunately we've discovered along the way that um, we've had certain little insertions into the texts that were just from fragmented parts of the scrolls where the scholars decided to kind of just, you know, well, contextually we'll, we'll try to put it where we think it goes here. And unfortunately, some of the times it just doesn't line up. It just, it, it doesn't create that fluid continuity between concepts and themes. And so we're, we're noticing that we're coming across these random, you know, every once in a while, these random just tidbits that are like, why, why is, why would this be here? Why wouldn't this be part of, you know, X chapter or, you know what I mean? So yeah, it's hard to discern when, when it comes to these types of things, but this could be from the previous chapter, this, the first yeah. couple of verses. But regardless, I think it's fascinating because it says he literally sees how the kingdom is divided. The actions of men are weighed in the balance. He saw the mansions of the elect and the mansions of the holy and the enemy being dragged off from the, from the presence of it. So like, that's fascinating. So this is when Yeshua talks about, I go to prepare a place for you. And in my father's house, there are many rooms. Yeah. John 14. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Here it now, is. Here it is. We, Jesus is directly quoting. Ken, is there any passage in the, in the modern American canon of 66 before Matthew? Is there any book that talks about our mansions in heaven? Not that I can tell. So here is another direct reference where our Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, was directly quoting from the book of Enoch when he talked about mansions in heaven. Yeah, and the same thing about how we're going to be made like the angels at the resurrection, right? Yeah. Nowhere do we see anywhere in the, in the canon of 66 that, that concept being talked about in in you know the old, what we call the Old Testament other than in this book. And I think Second Baruch actually talks about it too, but... Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, no, I think it's John 14, 2 and 3 is where he talks about the mansions in heaven. But also, I, I wanted to point out here where it talks about the kingdom being divided. Um, because when we got all these descriptions in earlier chapters about the book of Enoch, where he actually sees the garden of life, where all the you know people are, are going to be at the resurrection. And the mountains, the seven different mountains, and Zion is the biggest mountain of the seven. And then on the top of Zion is the throne of the Messiah and everything. Um Mix that with the vision that Ezekiel gets in chapters 40 through 48 about the kingdom and the interior designs and the two different places and the palaces and the temple and all the different things going on. Um, plus what we get in Revelation 21 <laughs> about the new Jerusalem itself and how big of a landmass it is. Um, plus what Isaiah fi uh, 56 talks about and um, all the, you know, it's, a, it's the mountains within Zion are like the mountains of Bashan, the many mountains. We, I mean, so we get all this land topography description and everything. And we get the height, which is 1,500 miles in height, as well as length and width. So it looks like a big cube, essentially, you know, because it says the city's four square. I know some people want to talk about its pyramid shape, but let's leave that debate for a different episode. Yeah. All I'm trying to get at, all I'm trying to get people to think about is he saw how the kingdom is divided. So I don't know if it's talking about verse the end of verse 2, where it says that those who denied the authority of the Lord of Spirits is being dragged off. Or if it's talking literally about the, the actual literal divisions of how this thing is so big, the New Jerusalem is so big, 
it extends through multiple layers of ferment all the way up to the top. And then the angels live up there on their realms, and we live down here on our realms with access to go up to the throne uh, on Zion. So that's just a thought. Just a thought. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Um, I don't so, know if I have a particular, um, you know, comment on that. But yeah, but I mean, it could be. It could just be him talking about, look, I saw where the man, the, the elect are going to live in their houses, their mansions, and then the those who denied the authority of the Lord, they're being dragged off. So that's that yeah. could be how he's talking about how things are divided, and then the actions of men are weighed in the balance. That could be a more, you know, immediate contextual inference you know yeah yeah so sean how do you how do you understand yeshua when he says I, where I go, I go to prepare a place for you and in, in my father's house there are many mansions him preparing the place for us in what way do you see him preparing that place um, isaiah 49 uh, let me try to go to it real quick i've talked about this in other videos and other um when i did my new in jerusalem presentation yeah. On a different channel I, that shall not be named, I um, I basically went over the concept of why the Garden of Eden is the New Jerusalem and how, I mean, we even get that directly told to us in Enoch and also in, um, was it uh, Enoch chapter 60, but also, um, what other book was it? Um, is it? Is it Second Baruch, the Apocalypse of Baruch? But, with, uh, with the bride, you mean? Yeah, we get the idea that the Garden of Eden is the new Jerusalem that comes right. back down. The paradise of God, basically. But yeah, if I go real quick to Isaiah 49. And um, we can look at this idea of where it starts talking about in verse 14. It starts talking about the Zion. Uh, it says, but to Zion, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? The, you know, the Lord replies, even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I've inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders hurry, your destroyers and devastators will depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around all them gather to you. They come to you as I live, declares the Lord. You will surely put them on, put on all of them as jewels and bind them on as a bride for your waste and desolate places in your destroyed land. Surely now you'll be too cramped for the inhabitants and those who swallowed you will be far away. The children of whom you've bereaved will yet say in your ears, this place is too cramped for me. Make room for me that I may live here. Then you will say in your heart, who has begotten these for me since I've been bereaved of my children and a barren and an exile and a wanderer? And who has reared these? Behold, I was left alone. Where did these come from? Thus says the Lord your God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations, set my standard to the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians and princesses your nurses. They will, they will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Um, this is just saying here, he's actually expanding. He's Because this is too small in the beginning, which was the garden. And he has to expand it to bring it back down as a new Jerusalem. Okay, so you're you're thinking that Yeshua, when he says this, he's referring to expanding the actual the walls so, out, so it can accommodate more believers. Obviously, so two things: he's he's literally enlarging it, and he's preparing the the actual mansions, the rooms. Because what, in my opinion, what Enoch is looking at here is the actual future. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Because that's why he's seeing the sinners dragged off, um, yeah, because they deny the name of the Lord's Spirit. So he's seeing. So in the mean, like this is a future moment, but right now, in the meantime. These mansions are being, the land is enlarged and the mansions are being prepared. So, okay, that's what do you think? Yeah, no, it, it's very plausible. I I guess just historically, I've always kind of 
taken that as like she was you know out there with a mop and, and a broom and he's just getting everything nice and tidied up for when we inhabit our you know our dwelling places but yeah it, it, there is this concept of the new jerusalem having to be widened to accommodate you know a wealth of resurrected believers aside from just adam and eve in the garden right it had to be made much larger because that's the whole point is that yahweh had from the very beginning of time an idea of how many elect were going to inhabit this thing so it, it out of necessity it had to be in a way removed and expanded upon right but yeah revelation yeah, it's, it's a multitude without number right every tribe yeah. time nation. so yeshua's building this thing and he needs about two thousand years to do it well here's the thing is he literally up there building it or does he have <laughs> does he have his his ministers going out and doing stuff for him just like we read about the the big boys fanuel Raphael, michael gabriel right the guys that are in the overarching angels the other there's all these lesser angels that we're told it has myriads and myriads and myriads in numbers what are they doing yeah so i sitting mean around sitting around on the job site right yeah right you mean you know jesus told us in matthew 28 all authority in heaven and earth was given to him so he's got the authority sitting sitting next to the father on the father's throne revelation 2 he tells the angels hey we've, you know what does it say about the the angels that rejoice when a sinner repents yeah yeah it um oh what is it I, don't, I can't remember the verse off top of my head. <laughs> it's in First Peter. Um, but the point is, the angels are invested in our eternity just as much because they're doing the will of the Father. And they're doing it with joy because it is their commandments to keep. So, yeah, like, absolutely, brother. Absolutely. We've got a lot of people on our side that are rooting for us. <laughs> a, lot yeah, of, no, a lot of entities, not just the Father, but all of his angels that do his will are rooting for us, you know? So not not only Sean is Yeshua High Priest and you know all the other titles, but he's got like the job foreman title as well. He's a he's the construction job manager apparently. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's Jesus. Uh, I think it's in Luke fifteen that in the same way there's joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Yeah. So yeah, they're they're heavily invested in us walking in the ways of the Father and inheriting eternal life through Yeshua's priesthood. So that's absolutely brother that's what i would say like he's just delegating authority they're going to go out and help prepare the land and stuff yeah to be honest i i haven't given much thought to that um that process you know of the actual kingdom of god being expanded and him taking part in how that goes about in his expansion so that's an interesting thing that i really think about really is it's cool yeah, that's that's why it's so massive in my opinion, um, because it has to be. That's why it's fifteen hundred square miles. It has to be. There's a lot of people, and I know people talk about, well, the, the way is narrow, brother. Not all, you know. Many are called, few are chosen. Well, he calls billions, but even the few that are chosen out of those are still, in my opinion, going to be hundreds of millions, if not even a billion, over the course of the timeline of mankind, right? Because we know, as Peter tells us, he's not slow in coming, but so that all might be saved. You know, he's just he's waiting for the proper time. He wants as many to be saved as possible. And the point of this is that, you know, you've got a merciful God that is like he's got all the land in the world to work with. Real estate's not a problem for him. And he's just sitting there going, I want to be get as many people into the bride as possible. Yeah. Um, and that's, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Well stated, brother.
All right, so I'm going to finish off 41. I'll keep reading. We're going to go into how the uh, Enoch is describing what he's seeing about the sun and the moon and their courses. And then um, we'll jump to 42. So uh, verse 41, verse 3, it says, And there my eyes saw the secrets of the lightnings and of the thunder, the secrets of the winds, how they are divided to blow over the earth, and the secrets of the clouds and dew. And there I saw from where they proceed in that place, and from where they saturate the dusty earth. And there I saw closed chambers, out of which the winds are divided, the chamber of the hail and winds, the chamber of the mist and of the clouds, and the cloud thereof hovers over the earth from the beginning of the world. And I saw the chambers of the sun and moon, where they proceed, and when they come again, and their glorious return, and how one is superior to the other, and their stately orbit, and how, do they, how they do not leave their orbit, they add nothing to their orbit, they take nothing from it. They keep faith with each other in accordance with the oath by which they are bound together. And first, the sun goes forth and traverses his path according to the commandment of the Lord of Spirits, and his mighty and mighty is his name forever and ever. And after that, I saw the hidden and visible path of the moon, and she accomplishes the course of her path in that place by day and by night, the one holding a position opposite to the other before the Lord of Spirits. And they give thanks and praise and rest not, for unto them is their thanksgiving rest. For the sun changes often for a blessing or a curse, and the course of the moon of the path of the moon is light to the righteous and darkness to the sinners in the name of the Lord, who made a separation between the light and darkness and divided the spirits of men and strengthened the spirits of the righteous in his name of his righteousness, excuse me, in the name of his righteousness. For no angel hinders and no power is able to hinder, for he appoints a judge for them all and he judges them all before him. It's so amazing. Yeah. Um, just you know, real quick, because this is not related to the actual mechanical motions we just read about, but that last statement in verse 9, for no angel hinders, no power is able to hinder. He appoints a judge for, for them all and judges them all before him. And that's what the, the previous end of 8 talks about. He strengthens, strengthens the spirits of the righteous. Um, and he made a, a separation between light and darkness and divided the spirits of men. Um, to me, this is what in Romans, what is it, 8? Romans eight thirty nine, you know, for neither, um, what does it say? <laughs> Pull it uh, up. Yeah, for uh, that it's a famous passage quoted often in church, right? Um, let me get to it real quick. Many people probably already know where I'm going with it, but it's just interesting to to look at how this could be the verbiage and this could be the the thoughts that Paul was speaking about when he was making this statement, this famous statement here. Um, I think it starts in verse, Romans chapter 8, and let me see here, it starts in verse 37. But on all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, for I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything created will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, that's amazing. So verse 9 is like, no angels hinders and no power is able to hinder. For he appoints yeah. a judge for them all. That's Yeshua. That's interesting, man. Once again, Paul referring back to something else that was already recorded. Yeah. That's what I jokingly say, you know, like uh, all of Paul's writings, James' epistles, Peter's epistles, John's John's letters, their commentary on the Old Testament. Yeah. And yeah. much on and also on the book of Enoch and other places. Like they're they're not making new doctrine up. <laughs> yeah. Like they're they're the original commentary. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? And they're just explaining, like commentary would, the Old Testament in the light of the Messiah and what he what he did while they witnessed him and what he's going to do in the future, which is why they constantly refer back to the, the prophecies of the coming of the Lord in the Old Testament. 
you know, yeah. and it, it just blows me away when you try to point out to a fellow believer, hey, look, Paul is literally quoting from Deuteronomy. You think he's teaching something new? You know, it's like, how do you even arrive at that? Paul is in, you know, Hebrews 8. Paul's literally quoting from Jeremiah 31. He's not teaching anything new. He's just explaining to you how these things work. Like he's, if you wondered how Jeremiah 31 works, well, Paul tries to tell you, <laughs> you know, it's anyway, I'll yeah. stop. But. No, no, bro. It's good. It's, it's very, yeah, that's eye opening for sure, man. Um, I wanted to just throw in here real quick. It talks about how the sun and the moon kind of, you know, they don't leave their orbit and they don't add nothing to their orbit. So for those of you who know Sean and I well enough, we don't subscribe to the heliocentric model that we're presented with kind of today. And for the last few centuries, that's been, you know, promoted as, as what God's creation kind of looks like and how it works. And so there's other versions that do say that they, like, they don't, um, they don't leave their circuit which is something kind of different. I mean, the orb, the word orbit, it means the same thing essentially, but yeah. for those who were heliocentric minded, they would say, oh, there you go. There, it's an orbit. So it must be in a, you know, yeah, a galaxy that's going through an ever-expanding universe. So, Well, this you know, is one of those moments where we're going to get a lot of further explanation later in the, in the 70s. That's right. Yeah. Enoch, in the chapters 70, I think 71 through 79 of Enoch, it goes into great depth about the sun and moon and how they move around throughout the year and how they exchange power one to another and how the power, you know, builds from the sun across the face of the moon over like what, 14 parts or something like that. So yeah, we, we get all kinds of expounding. Remember as in the first few episodes, we talked about how Enoch will make a blanket statement or a small statement, and then he'll expound upon it later and explain later. That's what we're seeing again here. So he gives us, give us a quick introduction to the sun and moon and how they work. But in later chapters, he spends multiple chapters explaining it to you. That's right. Because it's a big deal. And by the way, for those who think that this is describing some sort of heliocentric model, which it's not, um, it says there's chambers in verse 5, the chambers of the sun and moon. Yeah, that's interesting. That, <laughs> that makes me think about Psalm 19. Exactly. Yeah. I can go to that real quick where it says... Um, yeah. Verse four, their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterance to the end of the world. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. He rejoices as a strong man to run his course. And it's, the course is, it back, the actual word in Hebrew is speaking of a circuit. So there's a completion, just like an orbit, start to finish. You come back to where you started. Yeah. So verse, verse six actually says, it's rising is from one of the ends of heavens and it's circuit to the other end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So exactly so this is not what we're told from a heliocentric model where the sun is just moving through space and we're floating around it this is a completely different description folks yeah. so i hope you're catching note of this um and that the moon itself is uh in relationship to the sun and of course in later chapters like i already mentioned and and i think it's in chapter 71 where uh it says the moon and the sun are the same size they're yeah. not two different sizes yeah they're the same size and i think what is it? One fourth of the, the the sun's light or something goes into the moon, and yeah, it's just very interesting. We'll we'll get to that eventually. But um, Sean, it was something interesting in verse three where it says that, and there my eyes saw the secrets of the lightning, the thunder, and the secrets of the winds, and how they're divided and blow over the earth, and the secrets of the clouds and dew. Um, it just made me remind. It reminded me of Jubilees two, 
verse right. 2, where he's yeah. talking about, for on the first day he created the heavens, which are above the earth and the waters and all the spirits, which serve before him and the angel of the presence and the angel of sanctification and the angels of the spirits of the fire and the angels of the spirits of the winds and the angels of the spirits of the clouds and of darkness and of dew and of snow and hail and frost and the voices of the thunder and the lightning. So in my opinion, this is possibly what he's talking about here in verse 3, that the secrets of the lightning are it could be synonymous just with the spirits of the, you know, the angels that kind of that's right rule that stuff. Yeah, you're right. You see that too or no? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Um, that's, that could be very synonymous because again, it's the same creation model description in, in Jubilees chapter two. So as Enoch, um, and, um, yeah, it just talks about the, the sun, you know, goes forth and traverses his path. Again, that's just in direct opposition to uh, what we're told about the helio model. And um, again, they're both said to have orbits and uh, they keep faith with each other. And, you know, these are and they're said to just be over the actual land in Genesis one put inside the firmament. So which is which is how they would have a chamber because the firmament is defined in Genesis one as being a structure, not just open air or space. So it's actually a house. It's the layers of the house. It's the it's the walls, if you will, the walls and the floor and the pillars and the t- and the beams of the house. You know, it's the, the firmament. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's interesting, Sean, how it, it's worded there. It says that the sun and the moon they keep faith with each other in accordance with the oath by which they are bound together. Yeah, and that's just um, I find that fascinating, and it makes me think about how they're bound to this oath and they keep faith with each other. But yet Yahweh was willing to do something for Joshua in chapter 10 and in uh, the book of Joshua chapter 88 with um, when they're fighting the, I think it's at the Amorites. Right. That's fascinating how he, he commanded them to stay still in their places and Yahweh kind of allowed that to happen. That's the only time in, in human history that Yahweh allowed someone like Joshua to kind of circumvent the little oath that they might have made with each other for the purposes of, you know, his, his sons and daughters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what's, what I love about that brother is that it matches exactly what Enoch is saying here, because not just the sun stops the moon stopped too. So if they're keeping faith with each other, he had to stop both. That's right. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And that's why he stopped both and not just one. So it's very cool. Very cool. Yeah, man. Uh, do you want to read the next chapter? Yep. Sure. Okay. We'll go on to chapter 42 guys. All right. Wisdom found no place where she might dwell. Then a dwelling place was assigned her in the heavens. Wisdom went forth to make her dwelling among the children of men and found no dwelling place. Wisdom returned to her place and took her seat among the angels and unrighteousness went forth from her chambers. Whom she sought not, she found and dwelt with them, as a rain in a desert, and a dew and dew on a thirsty land. Kind of a random little chapter, right, Sean? It really is, yeah. Now, but what's the only thing I would say because I don't know the vagueness of what it's really talking about, um, and but wisdom is often personified in a female female character. I was going to say that it's very Solomonic. Just yeah. how, how it is personified in a, a feminine form. So, yeah, we see that in Proverbs 8, is it? And then yeah, Proverbs 8, yeah. Uh, Ecclesiasticus talks about it a lot. And then Jesus himself talked about it in um, 
Well, yeah, you know, when we were preparing for this show, Sean, I was actually looking through Ecclesiasticus because it sounds like, you know, this particular chapter sounds like something right out of that book. I guess I, I'm certain that I, I've seen something that is almost verbatim to this, but I couldn't, I couldn't find it to pull it up for today's episode. Yeah, um, and I, I can't think off the top of my head. I didn't prepare it ahead of time, but there is a, a verse where Jesus is speaking in the feminine about wisdom, apparently. Um, I can't remember yeah. if it's John 7 or John 8. But, yep. So it's just common a common motif, apparently, to speak about wisdom and personify her in a female capacity. Um, yeah. As far as unrighteousness went forth from her chambers, I don't know what that exactly means, unless it's just talking about the the angels who left heaven and came down to teach, you know, among mankind that the godless practices. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is kind of a separate topic or not, but Isaiah 11 too, I find that interesting just how, I don't know if there's any correlation with that chapter and revelation five, six, where it says, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders and a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Um, and then Isaiah 11, 2, where it says, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. I don't know if there's a, a correlation here at all with this spirit of wisdom. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? I'm not... This wisdom... I would could be like a spirit, an actual spirit that stands before Yahweh's throne. Personally, um, this is, you know, people want to say, well, you know, this kind of goes to a Trinitarian topic. So it may be a little off topic to the chapter, but, you know, it, to me, it's just expressing the different attributes of the spirit of God and um, explaining. That's why the beginning of, of Isaiah 11 verse two says the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And then it expounds to explain the different attributes those yeah, spirits yeah. provide. Uh, or excuse me, the spirit of God provides to him. And so it just, it just introduces each one as being a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of understanding, a spirit of counsel, you know? Um, But I don't know if it's the same personification or context of, of understanding the application of God's power um, as what we're reading in this Enoch part or not, to be honest with you, it doesn't really, because we just see it all wisdom personified as a woman in so many other places separately without yeah. having to mention the multiple spirits of uh, the multiple aspects of the spirit of the Lord. Yeah. So, but you know, it's interesting, but as is, if we're doing a video on uh debunk in the Trinity, that is a 11 two is a great one. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't have anything else really to interject with this chapter, man. To be honest. Yeah. This is a, this is a little bit of a unique insert and uh, there's not much going on there. Very, very vague. And, um, but again, we we see stuff just like this in Proverbs 8. Jesus even mentions about wisdom, uh, speaking about in a female female concept. So, yeah. Um, All right. You want to go on to the next one, maybe? Yeah, we'll do uh, 43 real quick. Chapter 43, verse 1. And I saw other lightnings and the stars of heaven, and I saw how he called them all by their names, and they hearkened unto him. I saw how they were weighed in a righteous balance according to the proportions of light the width of their spaces and the day of their appearing and how their revolution produces lightning. And I saw their revolution according, according to the number of the angels and how they keep faith with each other. And I asked the angel who went with me, who showed me what was hidden. What are these? He said to me, the Lord of spirits that showed me have showed you their parabolic meaning. 
These are the names of the holy who dwell on the earth and believe in the name of the Lord of Spirits forever and ever. And real quick, Ken, I just want to mention the the context here says, or the uh, the insertion by the translators, it actually helps us try to define the idea of the parabolic meaning. So this is just meaning the metaphor meaning. Correct. So this is what he's trying to, he's shown him a vision and it's in metaphor fashion and now he's going to explain it to him. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so just so we're not confused. <laughs> yeah. This this is this is where like this is great because Revelation does this too. The angel says to him, I will show you the meaning of the vision. This is what this means, this is what that means. So this is the same concept we're getting here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think we talked about this chapter a few episodes ago. Is it this one? Yeah, where they the stars are um According the revel, their revolution according to the number of the angels and how they keep faith with each other. Um, this this one, um, no, no, because we were talking about the one where the the stars themselves are named after the believers. The elect and the righteous, yeah. right? Yeah. This is a little different. Okay. I was going to say because it, it seems just how it's worded there. It's, it's very very similar to that chapter. Yeah, I think that's a different chapter. I think it's like chapter 46 or something. But uh, basically, this is, again, talking about the revolution of the stars in this firmament above. Um, Genesis 1 tells us, Genesis 1, verse, I think, 16 and 17 tells us the stars are put in the firmament above us. And um, this is, obviously, if we do time-lapse photography, we can see them spinning circles in the air, you know? Yeah. This is why. Uh, It's trying to give us an idea about their space and their day of their appearing, how the revolution produces lightning. That's interesting. What yeah. kind of lightning? What are we talking about here? Yeah, that is interesting. Um, so my theory about an electromagnetic firmament, which why Psalm 150 would call it the firmament of power, is that what it's talking about? Where it's charging up and it has to shoot off lightning? Yeah, it could very well be that. It's uh, uh, you, You've seen some of these videos of people that kind of zoom into the stars at night, right? And it, it looks very interesting. Um, obviously, I don't know if we can use that footage as yeah, let's splice it in. Yeah, um, but it looks interesting. It looks like there's kind of like a static electric bit of current that's that's running through them. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I fully believe that the waters above are a conduit for all this literal electrical power that's happening. Like, and we're living in a huge type of battery, basically, according to the design of the creation model. So that's just my personal opinion. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Yeah. Which sure. is why flesh cannot traverse the firmament, which is why you have to be made of water and spirit so that you can, literally can be the proper conduit to get through that medium. Yeah, yeah, amen. So, I mean, if we want to get all physics-y about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the um, our born-again experience at the first resurrection, is, is it's, there's a lot of physics involved. There is, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, do you want to take the next chapter? Yep, totally. It's short too. <laughs> All right. Also, another phenomenon I saw in regard to the lightnings, how some of the stars arise and become lightnings and cannot part with their new form. So some stars arise and they become lightning and they can't part with that new form of them becoming lightning, apparently. Is that how you see that, Sean? That one verse there? Um, yeah, this this particular chapter has always confused me because it's talking about the stars arise and become lightnings. I would love to look at the original text and, and look at the translations because I don't. It's hard for me to understand this concept about them arising 
and becoming lightnings to the point where what does yes. this mean some of the stars right yeah some of the stars yeah. is it basically saying that the stars themselves um become lightning and then they can't part with that form what does that mean does that mean that's no uh, idea because <laughs> the lightning we, we only see lightning for a split moment and it seems to be gone right so yeah so it makes me wonder if for one if lightning's in this passage and what that translation is again i can't look at the original text is it has this been translated properly is it the kind of lightning that we talk about with weather and clouds or is there some other type of concept happening in the firmament that this that the, the narrator or the translator didn't know what to say and use the word lightning as best he could because it may have had the, the hebrew word for light in it and so yeah, i sure. honestly don't know um, I don't the wanna, says or? <laughs> yeah yeah if the sefer i don't know what chapter it is in the sefer but at yeah. the same time, I'm not trying to be uh, a translator. I'm not trying to supersede translation. I'm just trying to say contextually and from everything we observed, there's nothing that I could explain this this particular chapter with. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a unique uh, little passage, but I'm not exactly sure how a star arises. I mean, unless this is just motion happening within the waters of the firmament above that uh, we may never see from our perspective, but because Enoch is seeing a vision, he's actually seeing it from his perspective, you know, this different perspective we don't get just like all the other visions he saw <laughs> right? right you know it's not it's not besides just the course of the sun and moon some of the stuff about seeing the land of heaven above and all that stuff we don't get to see from our perspective anyway that's right so, um all right so we can I'll, go on the next chapter there sean yeah i'll take out uh 45 real quick we'll read that and then um and then we'll conclude the show here so chapter 45, verse 1, it says, And this is the second parable concerning those who deny the name of the, the dwelling of the holy ones and the Lord's spirits. And into heaven they shall not ascend, and on the earth they shall not come. Such shall be the lot of the sinners who have denied the name of the Lord of spirits, who are thus preserved for the day of suffering and tribulation. On that day mine elect one shall sit on the throne of glory and shall try their works, and their places of rest shall be innumerable. Their souls shall grow strong within them when they see my elect ones, and those who have called upon my glorious name, then will I cause mine elect one to dwell among them. And I will transform the heaven and make it an eternal blessing and light, and I will transform the earth and make it a blessing. And I will cause mine elect ones to dwell upon it, but the sinners and evildoers shall not set foot thereon. For I have provided and satisfied with peace my righteous ones, and I have caused them to dwell before me. But for the sinners there is judgment impending with me, so that I shall destroy them from the face of the earth. Okay, so Sean, on uh, verse 3 here, it's interesting just how it's segued between verse 2 and verse 3 because the context of the first two verses of this chapter is referring to those who deny the name of the dwelling of the Holy Ones and the Lord of Spirits, right? So, you know, the New Jerusalem, the heavens, and Yahweh, and how they're not going to be able to ascend heaven, which is talking about in verse 2, and on the earth they shall not come. And then um, in verse 3, it says, On that day my elect one shall sit on the throne of glory and shall try their works. So it, it's how it's worded here is a little tricky because if we're saying their works, is it their works as in the ones of verse 2? Well, no, because contextually as we continue to read, it says, And their places of rest shall be innumerable. And those who um, are denying the Lord of Spirits, they don't get innumerable places of rest. That's, that's, that's never, uh, you know, something that's described or ascribed to them. So, yeah. Yeah. And I actually, I would suggest that they're trying their works. This is what Paul talks about, about some of our works being burned up like chaff and others that remain. I think it's in second Corinthians five. 
Uh, but we also get Revelation 11, where it says, now is the kingdom of the Lord, you know, of our glory of our Lord, where he's come to reward his bondservants, the saints, and to punish those who uh, are destroying the earth, basically. I'm paraphrasing Revelation 11. I'm not quoting it perfectly, but the old concept is that's what we're seeing here in verse 2. Um, he's taking care of those who deny him, right? That's why they're preserved for the day of suffering and tribulation. By the way, the use of the word tribulation, I think, is fascinating because doesn't... Uh, Yeshua used that in Revelation chapter two. The yes, hour of tribulation. Yeah, yeah. And so people have absconded this term in in churchianity, right? In modern day churches, to talk about oh the seven year tribulation of, and you're like, well, there will be persecution. There's always been persecution of the body of God by the enemy. Yeah. You know, and Revelation thirteen eight does talk about how the Antichrist is given the authority to overcome the saints, and he does, and he kills some of them, many of them, but. This particular tribulation, I think that is the is the hour of trial that Jesus is referring to, I think is the moment he returns. And this particular suffering and tribulation is for <laughs> literally for the, those who deny him, not for those who worship him. So there's like it's just a kind of a mixing of terms, really, that pastors have done over the years. And that's where I think when it says that on that day, my elect one shall sit on the throne of glory and shall try their works. Well, we're, we're the house of God is judged first. We are. And so our works, some will remain, some will not according to how obedient you were, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> were yeah. you, did you actually follow his words and instructions or did you not, you know? Um, so it's not even talking about salvation. This is talking about people that are already been granted eternal life and salvation um, who will then receive a mansion of the elect, a place of rest, you know, that are apparently innumerable to count. But our works will still matter, right? And yeah. this is... Um, this is why there's going to be some that are greatest in the kingdom and some that are least, according to Matthew 5.20. Yeah, I agree with that assertion for sure, man. And I've heard different teachings on, you know, which church are you today? Uh, yeah. Like, are you the one that's going to be saved from the hour of trial? Like, and, and yeah. but contextually, we know that whoever experiences the first resurrection is going to get all of that, all the different, you know, things that Yeshua includes with, and to them, I will give white robes of righteousness and a new name on a, a white rock. And it's all of that is included. It's all bundled up into one thing for whoever gets to resurrect. It's not just specific to whatever church he's referring to in that time. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I agree with that. We could do a whole separate video on that, right? Um, yeah. Just to help people understand that a little better. But, but yeah, and for those, you know, and the end of verse three, by the way, I want to point out just in case people are confused, the wording in this particular translation does seem to emphasize one thing over another that can confuse people. But this is a great example of how when we look at the context of the passage, we can see that it's referring to a process of events that Ken and I have spoken about many times, not only on this particular episode, but also on another show we do on Wednesday nights called The Road to Rescue on the Parable of the Vineyard channel. It's a totally different channel that a buddy of ours has, and we, we host a weekly show on there. So go check that out when you have a time. But um, we the purpose of our show on there is to to break down and dissect all the component pieces and even the timing of the events that happen on the day of the Lord when the Messiah returns. And that's what we're looking at here as well in this chapter, chapter 45. So when he sits on his throne of glory, this is the concept of him coming back and returning with Zion, with the new Jerusalem. He tries the house of God first. I've actually done an entire uh, video on this. Uh, it's called Who's Judged First? I'm going to put the, the, the thing up here on the screen for you to look at, and then the link will be in the description if you want to watch that later. And I actually go over how you know the people of God are judged first, according to Scripture, 
Now, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It doesn't mean you're not resurrected into eternal life, which is the definition of being saved. It just means that you literally will, you know, have to answer for your obedience. Like this is the father who judges everything. This is the point. He is the judge who's been commissioned to judge. So um, through his Messiah is the one that judges. And that's why it's talking about here. Um, uh, in my opinion, it says where their souls grow strong within them when they see my elect ones and those who have called upon my glorious name. Um, the angels actually come to pick up us who are being resurrected. So this is this is where I would say it's the, the souls of those who are being resurrected grow strong within them. When they see his elect ones, the angels sent out to go actually bring us back to the new Jerusalem. Those who have called upon my, my glorious name. And then, of course, I will cause my elect one to dwell among them, um, transforming the heaven and the earth. And in the, in the following verse, we see this concept happening within the new Jerusalem, where it talks about a new a new refashioned heaven and a new refashioned earth as the Greek explained to us, to us in revelation 21, one through three. So this, this whole concept here is being repeated in the book of Enoch chapter 45. Yeah, for sure. And summarized, if you will. Yeah. And we just need to keep in mind guys that we have angelic brethren or, or brothers and they're referred to as the elect ones as well. And the righteous ones, the holy ones. I mean, it's, it's an interchangeable type of synonymous, um, wording that goes with us and them so and it's describing people that follow the ways of yahweh that's right yeah so that's this just how you know easy it can be and of course he, he finishes off the chapter by explaining that you know they we have been satisfied with peace his righteous ones are satisfied with peace because they dwell before him this is the whole concept of what it talks about being made at peace with god so yeah, it's it's sure. The prophets speak about it proleptically, this, this coming future hope that we have to be made at peace with God, to get rid of the enmity of the flesh, to be given a new spiritual body with a circumcised heart. You can never fail or transgress his instructions again. You are made at peace with God. That's why I continually said in the Old Covenant, you know, um, as far as introdu introducing in the Old Testament, the idea of the covenant, that uh, if you do these things, I will be your God and you'll be my people. That was the whole idea. It was an interchangeable relationship based upon your obedient obedience, which created peace. So, yeah. And then verse four or five here, we have the new heavens, the new earth concept or the renewed heavens, new earth. Yeah. Absolutely. Interesting. It's all in the same day, same time frame. This is a, basically a huge summary chapter, you know, of, of this day of the Lord events. Yeah, for sure. Awesome stuff, man. Yeah, it's really, really fun text to get into. And that's where we actually see in later chapters, uh, 50 chapter, um, uh, what is it, 47 and 48, we see um, a little bit more about Day of the Lord stuff and the concept of the Messiah and the implications of the Messiah. 47, um, 48, yeah. And then also we see it again in chapters uh, 60, 61, and 62. Excuse me, 62 and 63. So um, we'll get to them though, guys. Again, like I said at the beginning of the video, Put in the comments below which video, which book, well, apocryphal book that you would like, or extra biblical book that you would like us to see dissect and, and go through um, as we're doing with the book of Enoch. And we're going to be kind of tallying up the votes, if you will, over the next few episodes to make to see what people are interested in. And um, we already have our own favorites, but that may not be what other people would like to see either. So we'll have to try to weigh out, you know, what uh, what we want people to understand first, since yeah. this is. Clear, you know, this is just the book of Enoch. Is kind of <laughs> Second <perfect>. Ezra. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, really, that's not too big of a book, is it? It's not huge. But yeah. It's, not it's, it's one that I'm really itching to get to. <laughs> but I can wait my turn. 
Yeah, and we may even do a couple episodes where we just knock out a little book over just one episode because some of them aren't as big as the Book of Enoch. Enoch is huge. So, That's right. you know, Enoch is like uh, almost like the Book of Jeremiah. You know, it's just big. Lots of chapters. Well, guys, this is it for uh, Parable of the Vineyard, episode 12. Uh, thank you for joining us. Honor of Kings, episode 12, actually. Oh, so. my goodness. Let me back up. We'll edit that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is it for episode 12 of Honor of Kings. Uh, thank you for joining us, guys. I really appreciate you guys uh, commenting, interacting, like, share the video. It helps us get it, uh, helps it propagate it on on the YouTube algorithms and gets the word out for people that you think these these episodes will bless. And uh, if you haven't subscribed already to our channels, please do so. I'm Keenum in context here. Um, Ken has his own channel called Hanging on His Words that you're seeing up here on the screen. And so you go over to his channel, and he's got you know a great video he just put up recently. Um, about the Messiah, and it's very, in my opinion, very good information for people to understand. Um, but ultimately, we'll be back next week with episode 13, and um, make sure to check out uh, Ken's CD because it's great music. So, Thank you, Sean. It's been a yeah. blessing. I enjoyed this episode with you, brother. I'm always getting edified, and, and the discussion is just always stimulating. So I just pray that you guys also get edified through the things that we discuss. And at the end of the day, we're all brothers and sisters trying to, you know, root out the, the things that we don't need in our heads and in our hearts and, and, you know, replace them with God's word. And, um, some of these things that, uh, you know, we discussed today. So yeah. thanks again John, for being a good brother and doing your due diligence. Yeah. Thanks for being here with me to, to break down this, these texts and, uh, I really appreciate your contribution, brother. Guys, thanks for watching Honor of Kings here on Kingdom of Contacts. Come back and see us next week. Guys, see you later.